1: Hey, welcome in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Appreciate you joining us today. I am Dion Roboan, your host. Joining me today on September 20th, we've got Peter Bookvar. He is the chief investment officer at the Bleakley Group. And of course, you probably know him as the editor of the book report. Peter, thanks so much for being with us today on the Real Vision Daily Briefing.
2: Thanks, Dion. I appreciate having me.
1: You know what? It's always a pleasure for us to have you on today. Uh, and, you know, an eventful day as we've had in quite some time on the market. We've seen the Dow, the SP, the NASDAQ, the Russell down two, two and a half, three, three and a half percent uh, on the day. We're going to jump into all that and the big crash in crypto, Bitcoin dropping by as much as 10% today. And we got a little bit of dip in there at the end, but I want to talk first about a story that I don't think has really gotten a whole lot of, uh, you know, talk in the mainstream media, and that is the boom today in the VIX. Now, that's the CBOE Volatility Index. Basically, you know, you hear about it as the market's fear gauge, or you know, the gauge of how much fear, uncertainty, uh, excitement is in the market. That jumped today by as much as 35 to 36%, reaching the highest level that we've seen it at since uh, back in May. Uh, So, Peter, I want to just start with you. When you see this big move up higher today in the VIX, and we've been kind of moving in that direction for a little while, what is your takeaway from that?
2: Well, the interesting thing about the VIX is pre COVID uh, and and during the the rounds of of QE and, and Rate cuts, um, the VIX got very low. We had in twenty seventeen we had a, a single digit VIX, and and back then, twelve to thirteen, even fifteen was considered high. And then in a in a COVID world, fifteen ended up being the low end, and we know what happened, uh, you know, eighteen months ago on the high end. So I, we've we've essentially carved out a fifteen to twenty five VIX range outside of some intraday. It uh, moves to 30 this year, and it's rare uh, that we have a 2% decline in the S&P, well, intraday at least. Uh, we, we closed slightly better than that, and um, you know the markets are just trained to not have a sell-off. And when you finally get one, when you finally get a change in tone, uh, obviously, it doesn't take much to get the VIX jumpy, which we yeah. obviously saw today.
1: Yeah, I'm going to throw a word at you Peter, Volmageddon. It's been a while since we talked about Volmageddon, but that was back in uh, in 2018 all of these short volatility funds, funds that were basically shorting the VIX, uh, betting that it would fall and continue just to decline and stay lower, blew up. Uh, you even had an SEC investigation of what happened with that CBOE Volatility Index and some some funds that uh, various asset houses had made sort of betting on that volatility index to decline. As you see this spike higher now, is that something that's got you worried? That's got you thinking, "Oh man, we could be in for more trouble." Or is that just, you know, something for the the technicals out there and and not a real worry for the overall market?
2: Well, I don't know how much of it is a coincident indicator, how much of it is is necessarily leading. Uh, I, I think that if you get a, a change in tone from the Fed, uh, because there is mm-hmm. correlation between. Fed easing slash Fed tightening and and moves in the VIX. We know central banks just broadly, when you look out over the past 10 plus years outside of COVID, have suppressed uh, volatility and in the reverse when they pulled back. Uh, so I, I do think that, and we'll, we'll obviously talk more about the day, and, and obviously Evergreen is going to be on the front page of the newspapers tomorrow, uh, even though it's been talked about for a while, uh, I, I still think there's an element of uh, a change in tone with central banks that then also uh, changes the tone in in risk appetite and filters into the VIX.
1: Hmm. That's interesting, and you know we've got obviously a meeting, the Federal Reserve two day meeting starting tomorrow. Uh, they're going to come out with the press conference and Fed Chair Jerome Powell's statement on Wednesday. Um, are you expecting that this? You know, we've been selling off now. I think it's eight of the last 10 sessions. Uh, this one here, over 2%, approaching 3% intraday, and, you know, the NASDAQ dropping by those big numbers. Do you expect that to have a material impact on what we hear from the Fed on Wednesday?
2: It should not, I, and, and I don't expect it to. I mean, for the, for the Fed to respond to a 3 to 4% pullback from record highs would just be complete nonsense and would shred their credibility. And it's not to say they don't make up an excuse. I mean, Janet Yellen raised interest rates in December 2015 for the first time in seven years. And there was the belief that they would hike another three times in 2016. But she got scared about some growth slowdown in China. And of course, she only raised once that year and only after the presidential election. So there's no doubt the Fed will use any excuse that they can. I just think that citing a a stock market pullback uh, that is a a tiny blip on the map uh, would be a really lame excuse to to back off from what they should be doing.
1: Mm. Now, I I hear you on that one, but I think the Fed is looking for excuses. As you talked about, Janet Yellen used that, you know, the credit slowdown in China back then. And when we first got, quote unquote, liftoff in 2016. Now, you've got this Evergrande scandal, or you know, I guess it's not a scandal, but this Evergrande situation where the bonds are looking like they're going to default. No one knows how they're going to pay uh, this next interest payment that they've got coming up. And this is a huge piece of the Chinese market. It would seem to me that if Fed Chair Jerome Powell is looking for an excuse, and I think most of the folks I talk to think that he is because the Fed doesn't want to taper, right? They They want to keep this easy money flow into the market that... This is as good an excuse as any, and that now that the market seems to be reacting to it, maybe that gets into maybe not the language, but gets into the thinking. What are your thoughts there?
2: Wait, you mean like a central banker doesn't want to end the party and just wants it to go on forever? Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. Everyone's drunk and 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 driving afterwards. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess. But you know, the problem that the Fed has is inflation, and. When there's no inflation, and I wrote about it today, it's like walking around that concert pass, and you get all access to anywhere you want. When there's no inflation, central bank can just do whatever they want, and then they rise without consequence. The problem now is that we have much higher inflation, and whether it's transitory or not, we have it now, uh, so that for the Fed to uh, continue to substantiate that they need to Have 120 billion of QE per month and 1.44 trillion on an annualized basis, and find good reason for that uh, is becoming more difficult. And that's what makes this potential pivot with central banks different than prior ones, because the inflation story is sort of egging them on, pushing them to do it, uh, rather than uh, them wanting to necessarily do it on their own accord and their own timing.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you talked about it. It's not just the Fed that's meeting this week. We've also got Bank of England (BOE), you've got the Riksbank, uh, Swiss National Bank. I think you pointed out the BOE, the BOJ, the Bank of Japan. As all these central bankers are coming out, talking to the media, putting the headlines out there, does that put more pressure on the Fed, less pressure on the Fed, uh, to you know, to divert from course or to kind of try to come out here and soothe the markets? I think if you hear from the
2: Fed, uh, they'll say, you know what, they're going to do policy based on how they think they should do policy on the economy and and and, and inflation in the U.S. and and focus less on what others will do. Uh, and, but even so, when you when you look, we've reached peak QE at least for now, and we reached that earlier in the year. Uh, and since we've had the Bank of Canada. Reserve Bank of Australia, Trim QE, even the ECB said that they're going to slow the pace. Even the Bank of England in their last meeting said they're going to recalibrate and slow the, the, the pace. Uh, and then there, I think their QE is ending at year-end. Uh, obviously, the Fed is, is, is close to doing it. We've had rate hikes in emerging markets. So we've reached peak easing. And so that liquidity spigot, uh, while it's still flowing like an avalanche, uh, all you need is a slight change. And that can result in, you know, a broader uh, question about risk and valuations.
0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to com now. That's Ads. dot com.
1: So then, Peter, is it your opinion that we've we've seen that slight change, right? This talk about tapering that uh, Jay Powell came out with uh, at the Jackson Hole meeting. Was that the slight change that you're thinking of that's now shaking risk markets? Or do you think that we need to see something more than that?
2: Well, the Fed is tapering, either beginning October or starting in December after the November meeting. It's going to begin. Now, whether they end it, that's a different story, but it's going to begin, assuming that you know, the, the S&P is not trading at 3,000 by the time they walk into that November meeting. But the tapering is going to begin. Uh, they realize that they have a problem with inflation, uh, a problem because it's it's not just a, a Wall Street debate on, on Twitter about whether inflation is transitory or not, but it's a real Main Street problem right now. And the Fed needs to do something to address it since they're one of the culprits for the inflation because of all the money Uh, uh, the the easy money that they have where they're monetizing uh, a lot of this government spending that's filtering into higher inflation. I mean, every third world country that has dealt with high inflation has had the same characteristics of excessive budget deficits relative to GDP and a central bank that finances it. We're doing the exact same thing.
1: Mm. Yeah, it it does certainly seem like that. I want to go and and talk a little bit about a central bank that's not doing that, and that's the People's Bank of China. They're really standing firm. The CCP, the Chinese Communist Party has kind of made it clear, hey, Evergrande, you may be on your own out here. We'll see. There may be a bailout to come. But as you look at that situation. What's your big takeaway there from you know Evergrande as a Chinese problem versus Evergrande as a potential Lehman moment, as lots of the media have talked about, or as a global problem in terms of the global asset markets?
2: Well, the interesting thing when you if you, you know, if you lined up the Fed and the PBOC, you know the, the, the Fed wouldn't see a frothy market if it hit them in the face. You know the Fed mm. likes to just walk tough, like if there are excesses in the Financial market, they'll use macroprudential regulations to calm things down because you know, of course, they won't raise interest rates to address (laughs) any financial excesses. The Chinese have a problem, but at least their government and the PBOC have acknowledged the problem. They've been trying to cool down their property market forever. They instituted some pretty strict rules going into this year that would limit loans to developers. So they've actually been taking steps to deal with their property excesses, where there's never anything done in the US or from the Federal Reserve to deal with anything. You know, It was, it was decades ago that they would think about raising margin requirements to deal with, with, with lofty valuations in equity markets. Uh, and macroprudential has never been really used before. So um, you know, that gets us back to China. They obviously have a problem. You have one company that has as much debt as Evergrande and slash liabilities of $300 billion. You know, That's a problem for uh, anybody that's owed money, whether it's the individual who has a half-built condo or one that has no built condo just yet or suppliers uh, or investors. But I, I, I think the, the, the Chinese realize that that moral hazard and, and the belief that they're just going to bail everybody out every time, uh, they want to take a different tact. And that's why the equity holders of Evergrande will probably lose everything. Uh, the bondholders of Evergrande could lose everything or almost everything. They've already right. lost 80 cents in the dollar. So, they're going to get yeah. punished just as they should. Uh, but look, we bailed out the bondholders of Bayer. We bailed out the bondholders of Washington Mutual, of Lachovia via these mergers. We bailed out the bondholders of Merrill Lynch via these mergers. Um, so, what, what, what's going on in China is not unique. Uh, mm. They just have you know, a, a, a large thing that they have to deal with, but um, it's not unique. And they are at least uh, allowing. Um, Stakeholders uh, to suffer, and then we'll see to what extent they bail out the individuals that are owed money or employees that lent Evergrande money uh, because they sort of were were forced into it. Uh, we'll see how that plays out. But it's also yeah. indicative of a larger macro problem. I mean, everywhere in the world we have a lot of debt that was encouraged by central banks via zero rates and QE. So just. You know, Everbrand's not the only company that has a lot of debt, and China's not the only country that has a lot of debt.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So and I I swear, Peter, it's it's so great to hear you talk in some some sense there. I wish you, you know, were running the editorial pages over there at Bloomberg or seen in business because I see these headlines. Oh, it's a nightmare scenario and you know it's a lehman moment and I really, as I look at this, I I look out at a you know a country and a central bank that is sort of saying no, no, this is your problem. And it it does seem like what China's doing is they are stepping back and saying, yeah, you know what? You lent money to this over leveraged firm that was going out of its way, that was over its skis, that had levered up to way more than it was prepared to handle, and now you're going to have to deal with that. And Really, it seems like they're trying to make a point. You see this crackdown that we saw on Alibaba and Ant Group Financial and Didi and all those things. It seems like the Chinese Communist Party is making a point to say, hey, look, we're in charge, we're running things, and if you mess up, we're not going to step in and bail you out. And I think that's something that certainly US investors are not used to. But it's not, as you say, it's not completely unusual, it's not unique, and it's not something that's never happened before, even when we look at the history of the United States. Uh, I want to play a clip now, and this is from... August 2017. And I think our viewers are going to see this and they're going to find it a bit prescient. Uh, This is Ann Stevenson Yang doing an interview with Grant Williams on Real Vision. Now, this was on our Pro and Plus and Essential tier. If you've got those, you can go back and you can watch this clip, but you can watch the full interview. I'm sorry. We're going to play the clip right now. Uh, We'll be doing a live interview with Ann tomorrow, and that's going to be for all Plus and Pro members on Real Vision. But right now, I want to air this clip from August 2017, Ann Stevenson Yang and Grant Williams, talking about Evergrande back in 2017.
0: We should look at stress in the property market. So defaults, uh, a quickening of transactions in a certain place that suggests that, the, that people are trying to sell out of their property, um, spikes in values. One of, the, one of the things that I've been noticing is that in a lot of towns in Hebei province around Beijing, prices have doubled, tripled, and even quadrupled. In a year, and that acceleration is 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 a is a red light. Um, Ordos before its crash had had prices first, uh, first increase month on month and week on week, and then there were some places that were posting new prices every day. So that you do get to an acceleration point where one person asking for his cash can topple the whole yeah. thing.
1: So what you just watched there, Anne Stevenson Yang talking to Grant Williams on Real Vision from August 2017. Uh, we'll be doing another interview again with Anne tomorrow. She'll be right here. And that's available to all Plus and Pro members on Real Vision. You aren't going to want to miss that. So if you're not a Pro or Plus member of Real Vision, make sure and, and you know get that upgrade now. You're not going to miss what Anne has to say uh, next. Peter, I want to come back to you and bring it back to this conversation, because as you're talking about, you know, this debt is a big global problem, and it seems like maybe China's the one nation that's stepping in. Uh, there was a report just last week, I think it was, from the Institute of International Finance showing that global debt has grown to $300 trillion, the $300 trillion with a T. There haven't been any consequences so far, because as you talked about, central banks have really gone in and just underpinned all that debt and, and encouraged people to move out on the risk scale. But as we hit this $300 trillion milestone, is that anything to worry about, anything to think about? What are your thoughts about that?
2: Well, there's no number that, that, that rings a bell, uh, and in fact, because global growth has recovered, the jet... The, the The debt to GDP ratio actually came in a touch, but it, it's it it matters when it does. and it's always trying to figure out when that matters. and as evergrand has has experienced, it matters when uh, the Ponzi scheme Ponzi scheme sort of exposes itself because they lose access to to funding. and just as as Lehman relied a lot about, a lot on short-term funding, uh, so did evergrand. I mean I think of the technically 90 billion-ish of debt, about half matures within a year. And they relied on wealth management products to to bring in short-term funding and deposits from from buyers, which uh, is essentially short-term funding. And if you continuously rely on short-term funding to really finance longer-lived businesses uh, that that construction is, as an example, then eventually that's going to burst because There'll be something that 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 limits your access to that short-term funding, which we're of course seeing. Uh, yeah. I think that again, to what we said earlier, that China will will punish particular stakeholders, try to help others, and, and you know, in terms of you know the actual economic impact, in terms of delivering uh, condos to, to people that 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 paid for it, uh, paying back suppliers that. That that supply, you know, the, you know, the so paying back the vendors, you know, you're going to have a lot of healthier, I'll say healthier. I don't know how many healthy <laughs> Chinese developers there are, but the healthier ones will probably take over a lot of these projects.
1: Mm. And, Peter, I want to get to a couple of questions from the exchange. That's Real Vision Social Platform, and we'll be taking questions from there. If you've got questions, drop them in the exchange. That's Real Vision Social Platform. I want to take a question first from Hector C. and then one from Didi. They're both about this Evergrande issue. Uh, So Hector asks, what assets will be contaminated by this contagion? In other words, what should I short? Uh, and Dee asks, "Any chance of a real debt default? Would the market tank instantly, or would that take a couple weeks?"
2: Well, uh, on a debt default, I, Evergreen, uh, Evergreen, Evergrand, the evergreen. bonds are already trading at twenty cents in the dollar. So, right. uh, a default has already been priced in. I, I think the the real challenge and 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 is 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 to what extent do we see contagion and I think yeah. that remains to be seen in China, because you don't know to what extent uh, the Chinese government will get involved to contain this, because they have in the past been very good at, at, at controlling it. So It's really a, a, a tough um, thing to analyze in trying to connect the dots from here. I do want to speculate that if you were just an investor in the US that owns high yields, um or owns an expensive stock, if you're not using this as a gut check on valuations, then um I, I don't know what would trigger that for you. You know, you have uh credit spreads for for high yield. And I use that as an example just because it's 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 if you look at fixed income, it's obviously one of the 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 riskier part of that um basket. You know, if you have triple C credits going into today, and this is the, the rating category just above default. That's yielding six percent. That it was yielding in September twenty nineteen. So pre COVID was yielding about eleven percent. Um, yeah. that's quite a difference.
1: So that's five hundred basis points.
2: Yeah. Should I still be comfortable owning that bond? Um, well, if you're not again, like I said, if you're not using what's going on with Evergreen as just a sort of. Um, uh, 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 a need to have some reflection on what you 're paying for things now i don 't know what is', especially since we're going into a potential uh tightening cycle by the Fed, and I do think that tapering is tightening for those that that think that it's not um, but I, I I think that um, there should be gut checks everywhere uh if you 're a portfolio manager
0: you're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad.
1: Now, one thing that people look to in times like this is the cryptocurrency market, Bitcoin especially. That tumbled as much as 10% today during the day. Do Do you feel like crypto is a safe haven for some of those folks who are worried about what's happening in the equity market and with those valuations and with the credit market and things like that? What are your thoughts on the big dump we saw today in crypto?
2: Well, I think in the short term, when you get dislocations like this across all markets, uh, nothing is really safe, and you know, putting aside what you think about crypto or where Bitcoin should go, you know, it's still it's still a poster boy for for speculators. There's no question. Uh, in the short term, you can think what you want. Bigger picture, long term, that still may play out. But in the short term, it's still a speculative asset that's going to have bouts of spikes, but bouts of sell offs. And as a risk asset, uh, if risk markets sell off, that's not going to be immune. Now, bigger picture, uh, as, as a, a bull on precious metals, and I'm in the same camp of, of those that are bullish on Bitcoin, you know, the, the themes of currency debasement and and central bank madness and so on and so on. But uh, again, it's it's a risk asset. And when there's risk off, uh, it's going to get thrown into that basket.
1: Mm. Very interesting. I want to get to another question from the exchange. We've got a question from Tunkar. He asks, "Will the collapse of the Evergrande or the collapse of Evergrande and its bonds have a greater impact on developing or developed countries, and why? Developing countries, we're talking about those emerging markets: uh, Russia, Brazil, uh, China, India, those kind of countries. Developed countries being, you know, the U.S., Western Europe, Japan. So, which of those do you think the collapse, or you know, the collapse that we see coming here of Evergrande, is going to have a bigger impact on?"
2: Well, it's a good question. I think that obviously China is a, a big bas- a part of the, the emerging market basket. Uh, yeah. I, I think that even before the last week or two, when, when Evergrande really just totally unraveled, like I said earlier, it was January when China initiated these very strict lending standards for banks to borrowers. And if you're a Chinese bank that hasn't woken up to the excesses in residential real estate over the past couple of years, you, know, you shouldn't really have a job. Uh, I, I think the question is if, if it leads to slower global growth, then it's going to affect banks everywhere whose main business is, is lending. And uh, maybe you do get tightening lending standards. But on the flip side with China, uh, if they're trying to put an end to excessive moral hazard and they're letting Good companies survive and bad companies go bust with consequences uh, over time, and over time being years, uh, that could lead to a sturdier financial system. And, and maybe that is something that, that China is trying to achieve after all the, de- the debt that they've accumulated since the, the great financial crisis, where they spent a ton of money in 08, 09, 2010 to get themselves out of that recession. So it's always good when you have a period of extraordinary excess to cleanse that. And but cleansing is, 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 is a painful process mm. with, with a lot of uh, potholes and, and, and losses. But over time, you do need to have that take place. The problem is, is when you constantly try to avoid those situations through bailouts here, bailouts there, and cheap money that is always trying to you know, put makeup um, on on, on uh, you know a pig that um, that you eventually run into broader trouble. Um, so, mm. trying taking some harsh medicine, which I give them credit for, but again, there's 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 pain during that process.
1: Yeah, and I want to ask you a question about that, Peter, because to me, as as I step back and look at this, like I told you, I think you're right on the money here. I think the timing here speaks volume because you know you you always want to go through. You know, the harsh parts of what you have to do, and you want to go through some of the hard times while your competition is going through hard times, while your adversaries are going through hard times. And, you know, here in the US, we've obviously got this the COVID issues that aren't going away, the economy kind of slowing down. But if you look out further, I mean, The eurozone is in a bit of a mess. You had Brexit, uh, the third largest economy in the eurozone, leaving the eurozone. You've got Japan, their prime minister just stepped down. They can't get any kind of growth. Back to the eurozone, uh, the largest country there, Germany, really just getting no growth. And and now, we've seen inflation picking up. I think year over year, inflation uh, in Europe approaching that 15%, or excuse me, not Europe, in Germany, approaching 15%. And the rest of the world is kind of going through a real struggle right here while China's taken some of these steps to reorganize and maybe punish some bad actors or punish some actors that weren't doing what the Chinese Communist Party wanted. What are your thoughts about just the timing of all this?
2: Well, there are always problems in the world. Uh, There's never a problem free situation. There's always, you know, the only thing that's certain about uh, the world is that there is always uncertainty. Uh, the question is, is: Is how do you you handle it? And yeah, I mean, Europe outside of the UK is you know essentially a, a welfare state that limits them to a certain level of growth. Unfortunately, the U.S. Is, seems to be intent on moving in that direction, which will limit the growth here. Now, if you have a time horizon more than just a year, uh, I think Asia, led by the Chinese consumer, and I separate the Chinese consumer from the rest of of, of of China's economy, uh, to me, that's where you're actually going to see the best growth. Uh, and so if you're looking for investment opportunities, uh, a, a sell-off in Asian markets, um, I think is a pretty intriguing opportunity again, relative to the situations that, that, that you talked about, but it's, it's again, getting through a, a massive debt pile. And as, um, painless way as possible, even though that's not really that possible, but it's a matter of how quickly you get it. Those that let businesses go bankrupt, those that cleanse get through tough times quicker, those that like to drag it on like the Japanese did, like um, sort of we did by, by uh, bailing out the US banking system and sort of not cleansing, uh, then you get uh, sort of a malaise. And um, mm. we'll have to see who, who, who settles into that and who doesn't. When this is all said and done. Mm.
1: Very interesting. Your last question. I want to get a thirty-second answer from you right here before we uh, we check out. And I want to thank you again for being with us on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You talked today about on Twitter uh, the the S and P five hundred dropping below. I think it's the it's it's relative strength index going to the lowest it's been in, in a number of years. I think since March twenty twenty. You said. What does that mean? Is this a buy the dip phenomenon? Is this something investors should really be worried about? Because as you talked about earlier in the show, we are still only, you know, three, four, 5% from those all time highs.
2: It's yes, it's only relevant for the very short term that when we were down midday today, three and a half to 4% from the record highs just recently, uh, the 14 day, the seven day relative strength index did get to the most oversold since March 2020. Now, it's only one indicator of uh, of, of many, but it just tells you in the short term, very short term, uh, then we're probably going to have a, a bounce of some sort. And Whether that's turnaround Tuesday tomorrow, or it's triggered by a dovish Fed on Wednesday, uh, we probably will get a bounce. But that bounce will tell us uh, a lot about the health of this market, because if that bounce doesn't last very long, if it settles below the 50-day moving average, where the 50-day moving average all of a sudden becomes uh, resistance rather than support. Then you know you have a changed market here. Uh, So, but that's always the The always uh, uh, always a good test of a big sell is 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 what kind of bounce do you get when 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 you get it, and uh, if it's lame, that says a lot. If it's strong, then that says a lot as well.
1: Gotcha, Peter Bookvar, Chief Investment Officer, Bleakly Advisory Group, and editor of the Book Report. Thanks so much for being with us on the Real Vision Daily Briefing.
2: Thanks, Dion. That was fun.
1: And I want to thank all of you out there for joining us. Uh, check us. Check back with us tomorrow. We've got Tony Greer on with Maggie Lake here on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. We're back here, as always, closing out the market. In the meantime, we will see you on the exchange. That's Real Vision's social platform. I'm Dion Roboan for Peter Bookvar. Thanks for being with us.